But I was thinking this week, as we continue this series in Revelation, we've, we're like this week is 11 of 12, so next week is the last week. Some of you are celebrating, some of you are mourning that. Um, but I was thinking this week, as I was thinking about this text for these few chapters in Revelation, I was thinking about the first time that I fell in love. I was thinking about that moment when you just knew that if, if it worked out with this person, life would be better. That you had all these dreams about what could be, you know, the time where you placed your hope in someone else that it just might come true. I remember it very, very fondly. I was six. <laughs> and she was my aunt's college roommate, Tracy. And Tracy and I, if only it had worked out, no, um, the deal we had was when she, when I turned seven, we could get married. The problem was Tracy got married before I could turn seven. So uh, she broke my heart. Um, but what could have been, right? That's a funny story for us, but, but for all of us, we have moments where we've placed our hope in someone else or something else or some system or some whatever. And it's something that's temporal or momentary. It doesn't last. It's definitely not eternal. And so I was thinking, what's it look like when we've placed our hope in a boss or a business or a politician, or something you've owned, or your abilities in some way, shape, or form, and what happens when those things leave you feeling like it's not enough, or knowing it's not enough, right? I can tell you about how um, when I was a kid, I was convinced I was going to play in the NBA. My dad's six foot four. I kept thinking I would grow, and I'd be like two or three inches taller than my dad, which would put me to a height that would be prime, like play like a wing in the NBA would work, be great. Um, I'm still waiting on the growth spurt and on the phone call but played basketball with some high school kids yesterday and realized I'm now slow. Um, that also happens over time, right? Not going to get that phone call. Right? We put hope in things that don't last, hope in things we want and hope for. But this is really what John has been doing all throughout the book of Revelation. He's been asking this question, where do you place your hope? Where do you put your trust? What are the things that for you give life and you find your life in? And so he's asking this. If you're not careful, you'll put your hope and trust in things that don't last. And the point John makes all throughout this book is this. There's only one thing worthy of our worship or adoration or our life, and that's Jesus. And there's only one people that we should give our allegiance to, and that's his church. And he's messing with people's minds in the first century world, but he's probably messing with our minds as well. And this is hard for us to understand and wrestle with. One, we're not people in the first century, and, and Revelation's a weird book with all kinds of weird pictures, and we have all kinds of questions, right? Like the great reformer Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther about 500 years earlier, um, he was like, we should just leave this book out of the Bible. Let's take it out. John Calvin, who wrote um, commentaries on all the Bible except Revelation, uh, he, wrote, he left it out on purpose, not because he died, but because he was like, man, I'm just leaving them alone. Um, but, but what would happen if we were to think about it from a first century perspective? As we've been doing that, recognizing it was good news to the first century church, and it should probably be good news to us as well. So we looked at the beginning, how it's the chapters 2 and 3 about the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. That's who it's written to. It was a circular letter that would have been given and passed around and read aloud to the community of faith, all at one setting and one gathering. We looked at chapters 4 and 5 and kind of get this glimpse of of God's throne room, the idea or the place where God is at work. And, and we see that there's, in the middle of a world that's in chaos, in that place, in that space, everything was calm and at worship of who God is. In fact, we see this really cool picture where they, 
Someone says, look, the Lion of Judah, and John looks, and he sees the Lamb of God, because God comes in ways we don't often expect. And then we jump to chapter 6 through 9, there's this cool picture where they look, John looks again, and he hears 144,000, and he looks, and it's more than could be counted from every nation, tribe, and tongue. In other words, the people of God will be so numerous we can't imagine and they come from every single place at the end of chapter 9 there's this moment where all these bad things happen to all the people and no one repents everyone's like yeah i'm good i don't really need god in the middle of all the chaos and brokenness and destruction people are like yeah i don't i don't really need that what we see in chapters 10 through 15 is this idea when when the church embodies the message of god when they embrace it, when it becomes the defining characteristic of their life, then people move to repentance. It's a really cool picture, right? All the wrath in the world doesn't scare people to Jesus. But there's something about faithful witness of his people that leads people to choose him. And that's what brings us to today, chapter 16. And chapter 16 has this kind of picture where it's these things that are like the wrath of God. And, and here's what most commentaries said, or most scholars have written about. It's kind of a fascinating picture. That... It's this kind of recreation of the plagues of Egypt, right? If we go back to the Exodus story and the plagues there. But it's also the idea of what would happen if you and I continually reject God. If we continually reject God over and over again, what the byproduct of that is, is the overflow of the rejection of God. You're like, well, yeah, I don't know if I do that. Like, that's kind of weird. So we went back and we looked, and we're not going to spend any time with it, but like the Genesis story... God says, Adam and Eve, I love you. You can do whatever you want, except for one thing, because that's the only way I can know you're in a loving relationship with me. You just can't eat from that plate, that tree. And they're like, well, you know, I know I can't do that, but like maybe it's okay anyway. And they do it, right? We know that. And so here's the crazy thing about who God is. God loves us enough to let us go where we want to go. God loves us enough to let us go where we want to go. The problem with that is for most of us, we know where we want to go ends up not being that great a place. What we end up doing leads to more and more brokenness. But what might happen if we decided we're not going to continue to live into that? And so what we see in Revelation chapter 16 is how people twist the good things of God to their own ends. And so the plagues are like a a, a picture of that. An example, water is life-giving. Water twisted becomes blood in the text, right? Like there's no way that blood is life-giving in terms of like ingesting. Like that's just weird, right? So in other words, what was life-giving is no longer. Or said differently, structures and order are good for human flourishing. Right? We would agree with that. Anarchy is a terrible idea. It doesn't work. It's awful. But when structures or systems are misused, and they begin to be twisted for personal gain, they bring chaos. I know that's hard for any of us to imagine. And so what's the call for the people of God? And here's what we see in chapter 16, verses 18 to 21. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon, the great, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible." 
So what's the point, right? Um, I said this was good news to the early church, and you're going, where is the good news? Um, well, one kind of interesting thing, if you were a part of Roman culture in the first century, you would have equated anytime there was hail with a broken relationship with the gods. And so one, kind of keep that picture in your mind. But then the second part is this. When humanity chooses ways counter to God, it just leads to more and more broken things. And so I love N.T. Wright's words on this very particular passage. He says this. This is not the collapse of the physical earth. This is the only way to describe the collapse of the social and political systems of the earth. Terrible things will happen in human society for which the only metaphor will be earthquakes and huge hailstorms. Things will break down all around us. But this brings us to chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. In verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. I, I told you this was good news, right? I promise we'll get to some good news because so far it just sounds like bad news. Um, but here, John is talking about, in particular, the city of Rome, the people of Rome. But even more than Rome, it's Rome but more than Rome. Right, there really are seven hills in the city of Rome. Um, but empires, the idea of empires will offer all that we desire, all that we long for, all that we want. But what we find is what they offer, what we think we want, it's never enough. In fact, there was an ancient poster uh, in the Roman Empire. It was a poster or kind of a piece of propaganda that would have the goddess Roma like displayed on it. And the goddess Roma would hold a cup that was meant to be a cup that if you would drink from it, you'd get all the goodness that Rome would have to offer. It was a cup of life. Now, John takes that picture they would have all known. And he says, here's what the goddess Roma is actually offering. It is a cup of death. It's not a cup of life. You can keep drinking of all the things that Rome is empire, Rome is broken systems, Rome as Babylon as it offers, and again and again, it's going to promise life, but it's going to kill you. It will continue to destroy you. And so the goddess Roma, the embodiment of the essence of Rome, doesn't promise us things that will be helpful. And so Jesus is trying through John to help the early church see clearly what Rome offers. It is not a cup of life. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, wasn't sufficient for life. So the question for you and I is, if we seek our hope, our security, our trust, if the things that we hold to, all these things over and over again, are the things of this world, they'll leave us wanting more and more and more, and they will never be enough. Because there's only one thing that will satisfy the depth of our desire. It's a life of worship to Jesus.
Again and again, we'll seek all kinds of things to fill us, to fulfill our life, to give us life. But over and over again, what we find all throughout is they never offer what they promise they will. And this leads us to, com- to kind of summarize chapter 16 and 17 in this way. Um, all of sin and brokenness leads to things that bring death. That's, that's the point of these two chapters. Again, I said there was good news, right? At some point, I promise. But here's what we see in chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Maybe you're thinking right now, I'm glad I'm not a part of Babylon, a.k.a. Rome. I'm glad that's not where I find home. Again, we see this idea that drink the cup of what she offers. Like Here's the reality for all of us. Um, we know that Rome doesn't exist in the way it used to exist. And the truth is, all empires, all nations will have their end. In the end, there's only one thing that will exist, and it'll be God's kingdom. That's it. And so in the middle of all that, what do we do with that? And we see all throughout the book of Revelation, there are kind of two choices you and I are left with. We get to choose one thing or the other. We can choose life or death, good or evil, brokenness of Babylon or the redemptive goodness of God. We get to choose one or the other. We kind of, kind of have to lean in and say, I'm going to take this or that. We don't really get to stay in the middle. That's one of John's points, is you can't serve just the empire and God's kingdom. How do we live in this tension in the world in which we live? And so chapter 18's point, painting this picture that everything that we thought was eternal, that would last forever, that we had placed our hope in, that we had given love and adoration, it wasn't eternal. It doesn't exist anymore. And so I appreciate the way Scott Daniels kind of paints a picture for us. It's somewhat helpful to think about kind of two parts of this. Right, one, authority. Right, authority in and of itself is good, Right. Here's where we think about that. Parents, teachers, good coaches, maybe pastors. I don't know. We can debate on that one another time, right? Like those are probably good forms of authority. But we know when authority is twisted, how it becomes an end in of itself, how it corrupts, how then we go, ooh, the system is broken. And that creates the second part, systemic nature of sin. Have you ever noticed in your own life that if you commit one particular sin and you keep committing that sin again, and again, and again, eventually, it doesn't even seem bad. It's okay. If you keep doing something enough, you go, well, it's really not that bad. It's okay. You may know in the deep, dark recesses of your mind it's not okay, but like you're going to keep living into it, and it, it, it's okay. It's a system, kind of systemic thing that can impact the whole. In other words, I'd say it this way. Um, you and I, we are more than like bones and skin and ligaments and muscles and brain and, right? Like, we're more than all the parts of us. We're more than the sum total. Makes sense. You're like, yeah, I get that. Because, like, we have feelings and emotions. We're not just bodies. We're not just pieces coming together. We're more than the whole. 
And so this is the idea that sin in and of itself becomes more than a singular act. It becomes something that has its own life. And so the temptation for you and I over time is to kind of treat people as commodities. Right? We, we, Martin uh, Buber wrote a book called I and Now years ago. And so it was the idea that, that we live in relationship with one another. We live in community with one another. But, but if we're not careful over time, rather than me being an I and you being a thou or a, a you or whatever, we, we begin to see people as means to an end, objects to get what I desire. We know this happens in dating relationships. You're an object to get what I want. We know this happens with employees and employers. Sometimes it happens with spouses or with parents and children, right? You're like, you're a means to get what I want. And people are no longer seen as people, but commodities to be bought and sold and traded and longed for however I want to use to my own ends for my gain. That's systemic nature of sin. Right, and here's what we see in the rest of Revelation 18, these words that, that might be helpful too. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Did you catch we switched? Like this is about business here, in case you missed this. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Notice, John doesn't talk about staples of life. Right? He doesn't talk about bread and milk and things that like, we just kind of need to sustain. I mean, I don't even just fine flour, but that's fine on purpose. Right? He talks about luxury goods. In fact, he goes so far to say, merchants will be so messed up that they will mourn and weep because they can't sell people as slaves. This is where sin takes us to all kinds of broken things, where we embrace things that are never good. Right? These, it's, why, it's why this whole point is this, man... If, if you commodify people and things, right, it's like, gosh, even this was okay in this day. Right? We're like, well, yeah, well, we don't believe in that. Well, I hope not. It's the whole point that John's trying to make is that systems of empire will lead you to all kinds of things that they'll justify their own ends for their own goals. But the kingdom of God is uniquely different than all the kingdoms of the world. God's people are to be marked out differently. That's what we talked before, right? We're to be marked by the Lamb, marked by Jesus that our lives should look radically different. We shouldn't commodify things or stuff so much so that when they fall through, that we've placed our hope in our business or in our money or in our stuff, that when we lose it, we're like, oh no, I have no more hope. My hope's gone because my hope was in everything tangible. It's not eternal, it's temporal. They weep and mourn because Amazon Prime of their day is no more. I'm as guilty as anyone with boxes showing up at my house. 
but they weep and mourn because Amazon's not running smoothly. It's more than two-day shipping. This is the problem. This is the temptation. We can be more concerned with the systems and the structures that lead to our own ends than caring for other people. So here's the summary of this section, right? Judgment is coming on all those aspects that do not reflect the divine image, the divine goodness of God. And so where do we see that? It happens in the personification of evil. It happens in the parts of Babylon that we have made eternal. It happens if we've commodified things that will make us weep and mourn if they are no more. And you're like, so what? What about my life? All right, well, here's what would happen for you and I. If our life is wrapped up in these things, we'll find that when they fail, we don't know what to do. Consumerism or shopping or making more money. Politics, especially a week of election, a reminder that our hope is not in that. If our hope is found in athletics or own abilities or anything else, those will fade away, I promise you. And the question is, where do we find our hope? Our hope is in the systems of the world, not the kingdom of God. Again and again, we'll find ourselves much like these merchants, weeping and mourning because they are no more. You're like, well, huh. Judgment of the nations, judgment of Rome. And maybe, maybe remind you of another text in which Jesus was teaching. This text from Matthew chapter 25. Because nations are judged by how they treat the least of these in God's kingdom. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I don't know how to separate sheep and goats. It's a whole other conversation. But here we see, he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, those who are his sheep, who follow his voice, come, you are... Blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Right, if you know the rest of the text, it goes on to say, well, ah, when did we do those things? I didn't know I did those. And Jesus goes, ah. Whatever you did for the least, you did for me. And he says to the other people, and they're like, but we did all this stuff for your name. He's like, I don't know who you are. Because you brought into a different way of life in my kingdom. All right, so this is about the judgment, and this brings us to the next chapter, chapter 19. Again, we're talking about where's the hope, right? We're wondering, we're longing for hope at some point, because so far it doesn't seem very hopeful. Here's what we see in chapter 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. 
For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That should be such good news to you and I. Right? The Lamb, that's Jesus. His bride, it's his church. So we find that in the midst of what seems to be chaos all around us, over and over again when the nations or empires fall, right? We could talk about the United States or Germany or France or you know, England or Nigeria or whatever. When the nations fall, it is the kingdom of God that will be left standing. And do you and I find our comfort and our security and our hope in God's kingdom in the person of Jesus? Or do we find it in the things of this world? That's the question that John's asking us throughout this. Did the systems of the world, they probably work for you and I at some level. If they work for us, we like them. But if they don't work for us, maybe this is even more good news for us. Because to Rome, first century, right? Like we'd be better off reading ourselves as being Rome than the first century Christians in terms of the world in which we live. It's not true in all the parts of the world, but it's fairly true here. This is hard for us to comprehend. But the message of John is the same again and again. Where do you and I find our hope? Where do we place our hope and our trust? And this is where we go, well, what, what do we do then, right? If, if our hope is within the, we work for the good of the place that we live. That's what we find in Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah 29 has this beautiful picture. The God's people are li- called to live as resident aliens in the places they call home. This great picture from Jeremiah 29.5 says this. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, listen to this part, seek the peace and prosperity of the city or the nation or the people to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So you still work for the good of the place you live. That is the call of God's people here and now to work for the good of the place that we live. But it's this reminder here that we are resident aliens, that this is not our home, that there'll be a day when God redeems and restores and makes all things new. That's what we talk about next week, by the way. But may you and I place our hope in the one who is eternal. Right? And I said we'd talk about chapter 20, so we'll briefly, like very briefly, we're not going to read anything from it. Right, but chapter 20, here's the point of chapter 20. Um, I could spend a lot of time, there's this whole section about this idea of that Christ will reign over a thousand years. People have taken all kinds of things in all different kinds of places, right? They, they bought into these views of like, you're a post-millennial or a pre-millennial or a-millennial or maybe even you're pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. And here's the point. Christ will reign. Christ will return. The martyrs will be vindicated. There will be a judgment in the end of all wickedness in the world in which we live. But what we could take from this chapter, I'm going to quote a couple guys here that I thought was some good words. It's fascinating to theologians that two scrolls are opened. The first that contains the deeds of all who have lived and the other scroll of life. In a powerful mixture of images, John seems to take seriously both human freedom and divine grace. In this very brief passage, John is not clear on what the implications are for how the deeds of all people will be judged. Nor is he clear on how one's name is inscribed on the scroll of life. 
What is clear is that our lives and our decisions matter, but the Lamb is the final judge. Revelation does not list the names that are in the book of life, but it does give readers enough information to know that the comments about the book of life are designed to encourage faithfulness, not despair. Trust that God wants you to put this faith into practice and leave matters concerning the final judgment in God's hands. Here's some good news. God's God, and you and I don't have to be. The one who laid his life down for you and I, he is the one who gets to be the judge who said, for I love the whole world. But the question you and I are left to wrestle with is, what do we worship? Because what we worship matters. What's primary in our life? Where do we find our hope? Here's what I would say, that maybe, just maybe, we should read Revelation 20 from this perspective. Um, that maybe Christ already reigns. Maybe not in its fullness, maybe not all the way yet, but what if Christ is already Lord? Jesus is Lord. And what if just maybe what we see in this picture, in this chapter, is this idea that the beast that we find all throughout Revelation is in the last throes of death, trying to drag as many down to destruction with him as he can. But if we place our hope in Jesus, then we'll find that's hope worth living for. That's hope worth dying for. In the midst of our despair, our fear, our concern, when life feels really hard, when it feels overwhelming, that he's more than enough. What if maybe, just maybe, the point in this is that if we would find our life in him, that we'd find the life that leads to life, and that we wouldn't find the desperate moments that would be what would bring us down, but we'd know that in the end, what we know, the promise we have through Jesus, is in the end, the love of God, love wins. That we don't have to be worried about that. But what we do have to recognize is what the sum of our life, how we live, does matter in terms of God's kingdom. The messages that we talked about last week, the message that we embody, the witness that we give, the behavior that we live out, those things do matter. And they have implication in the world all around us. Because what might happen? What might happen if you and I, what might happen if you and I bared such witness to who Jesus is that we lived and we loved and we laughed, honestly, in such a way that we didn't have to worry about the things of this life that people are so drawn down by, that things that consume us or that we try to consume. But what if we had a hope that was eternal, a joy that couldn't be diminished? What if you and I knew the one who was going to set the world right? And we recognize that... in in between then and now, I have hope and trust in the one who loves me, who knows me, and has invited me to follow him through all eternity. And we, you and I could know life that would lead to life and that it might impact other people. What if you and I know that, Jesus? Who says to you and I, for I so love the world, I gave my only son, that whoever would believe in me would have eternal life. What if, what if you and I, what if we so love the world? And not in the way that John's warning us against, where it's like we love the stuff of the world. But what if we so love people the way God so loves people? Here's where I'm completely convicted of, that you and I would see radical transformation in people we come to know if we love them the way Christ loves them. And so what might happen if you and I embrace this idea that God has invited us to be a people so radically defined by his love? And there will be a day when Christ is all in all, and he'll reign fully supreme. But until that day, his witness, his faithful witness, is his church. 
So may you and I be his faithful witness in these days. That's our hope and our prayer. We pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. That you come to us as we are, where we are, and you desire to transform us, that we look and sound and act and live more like your son. That we may be defined by your kingdom and rather than the kingdoms of this world, that the Babylons won't be who we are, but we'll be your faithful church. We'll bear witness to your love and to your grace and to your mercy. And we're reminded in Revelation chapter 20 that, that we believe Christ will reign. That goodness will reign. That hope will reign. That we can find that your love can define who we are. It's today, if we're wrestling, if we're feeling overwhelmed or burdened, may we recognize there is a place we can place our hope and our trust and even our love. And it's a place that leads to life. And that's in following your son. So Father, help us to live as a divine reflection of you. May we be image bearers of the one who we're created by. May we love as you love. And may we live as your son did. We pray all of this in his name.